In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we are back, yeah. baby. Man, I am good. so excited to be back. Feels good to be back. Uh, today is going to be a very exciting episode. We're going to talk about the Don't Say Gay Bill. Then we're going to have a discussion about book bans. And then we're going to end with a sort of philosophical... Um, damn, I already used the, dis- the word discussion. Uh, dialogue about uh, corporate <laughs> wokeism. I, I try to build up to discussion. Yeah, I think usually. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think this is gonna be fun. It's gonna be like a classic. Nathan and Michael get riled up about stuff that's yeah. like real problems, but like you know, not all not war, which is yeah, a little not bit war. nice to step away from. Yeah, we should we episode. should probably address the elephant in the room, um, which is the fact that uh, we we haven't been here for like a few weeks. Yeah, so on my side, I uh well, it was kind of part you know, stepping away from the pod to like rest during a busy time and then part also getting covid. So, that was yeah. like a whole week when I was just out for the count for sure. Yeah. You had covid. I know. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cuz yeah, so um the reason why I've been out is because uh so I had cancer like like cancer um and then I had oh. surgery to remove the cancer and then I was recovering from that surgery to remove the cancer and I'm still kind of recovering yeah. a little bit but I'm mostly recovered uh I've been told that it's really unlikely that it's spread at this point, which I, I hope is true. I'm going to be going in for a, a CT scan to, just to make sure, but I'm, I'm probably cancer free at this point, but yeah, no, I, I had, I had cancer that happened. That's what did you, what like listener, what did you do? You do for the past three weeks. Cause Nathan beat cancer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so talk about well, an hopefully. accomplishment over yeah. the last, over the last month. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a competition, you know? Sure. But you know, Michael had COVID and I, but you games. win. It's not a competition. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a competition though. It's not a competition. Yeah. Speaking of COVID, Michael, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even really need to any obscure yeah, reference. We're just already this talking time. about it. Yeah. What are the COVID numbers? So at this point worldwide, we've hit 503 million cases. Uh, which is up from 498 million last week. Um, so that's 5 million new cases in a week, or about 714,000 cases per day. So we've dropped a lot a lot since the Omicron peak, um, but we're sitting still about where we have been uh, pretty much throughout 2021 uh, in terms of daily cases at this point, um, worldwide, that is. In terms of death, we've hit 6.22 million deaths, which is up from 6.20 million deaths the week before. So that's just 20,000 new deaths in a week, or about 2,900 deaths per day. And that's 
incredibly low. We haven't had a daily death rate that low since the very early days of the pandemic, like March 2020. Like 2,900 deaths per day is like a number that previously we would have expected to be associated with just the United States. And that's like all the deaths in the world due to COVID. Um, So that's like an amazing amount of progress. In terms of vaccination, we've hit 66.4% of the world's population with at least one dose. You know, we're still like stuck in the 60% range. Um, There's been like very little momentum there. In the U.S., we've hit 82.2 million cases, which is up from 82.0 million cases the week before. So that's 200,000 new cases in a week or about 28,000 cases per day. Again, this is the lowest daily case rate in the U.S. that we've seen since May 2020. So, Hmm. you know, that was just like a few weeks, a couple of months into the pandemic, and we're back down to those low, relatively low levels of cases. And the news on deaths is honestly even better. So we did, a couple of weeks ago, break a million deaths, which is obviously fucking terrible. So at this point, we're sitting at 1.014 million deaths in the United States. Now, if you noticed, that's three decimal places because last week we were at 1.012. So just 2,000 deaths in a week from COVID, under 300 deaths per day, Hmm. which is crazy, crazy, crazy low. Like, it's still... At least in comparison. In comparison to where it is. It's still bad. Yeah, it's still 100,000 deaths per year at at that rate. Um, but that takes COVID from, you know, the second highest cause of death on a daily rate, um, which it was like during some of like the peak deaths in the pandemic to, you know, seven or eight, like in the line yeah. with diabetes. And like, obviously, diabetes is terrible. It's no joke, but it's manageable. Yeah. yeah. And barring a terrible new variant. I mean, I, I, I really hope that I'm not jinxing it, but it feels like we're coming out of this thing finally. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking the same thing. And, like, you know, I think the <laughs> the story is, like, so unsurprising because <laughs> it's, yeah. like, vaccines have delivered us here. Yeah. 77% of the U.S. population has one dose of the vaccine. 66% have two doses. 30% of three doses. Like those like the yeah. two and three doses are not as high as we'd want to see them, especially with Omicron, like that third dose, that booster is like so important to like limit the number of, you know, severe cases. But you know, vaccines have gotten us here. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I I, I will say that I am kind of glad that we were able to get to this point without doing a massive invasive vaccine mandate. Like, cause Michael and I have said from the beginning, we support the idea behind a vaccine mandate, but that's not ideal. I mean, even if it is something that helps, it does still suck to have to get the government involved in something like that. So, I mean, maybe if we had done it sooner, we could have saved some people, but I mean, it is kind of nice that we were able to get out of this thing without having to do yeah. that. Yeah. So to you your know. point, yeah, like the fact that it took, you know, 
like a year and a half of having vaccines to get to this point in like vaccination rate. It's a little discouraging if we had, yeah. we had, you know, supply sitting out there. Um, and that, and to your point, like what that could have done is saved lives. We could have kept that number maybe even below a million. Um, yeah. But like, but, but I do agree that we've been preaching this whole time for basically two years <laughs> is like harm mitigation. Like that's yeah. the whole thing is like, you know, we talked about it with Raymond when he's on to talk, talk about vaccines. It's like, it's not, it's not take this vaccine cause there's no risks. It's take this vaccine yeah. because the risks, the benefits far outweigh any potential risks and yeah. the risks of the disease are far more dire. And that's true of vaccine mandates as well. It's not that we want mandates. It's that if it's necessary, yeah, then it's necessary. And there's like a philosophical support for, you know, forcing people to to do what's right for public health. Yeah. Speaking of epidemics that have lasted way too long due to medical ignorance and just general ignorance, let's talk about homophobia and transphobia. That was the best transition we've had in 115 episodes. That was the best one, and I and I ruined it by, by calling it out, but I had to call it out. No, I felt good yeah, about it. I appreciate really it. Nice. I appreciate the recognition. That was really good. Yeah, so we're talking about anti-LGBTQ legislation. I think specifically we're, we're mainly talking about the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. Um, this has obviously been brewing for... A number of months since you know at least at least january um yeah. and it's kind of at a place now where like i think we just have to talk about it there's no avoiding it yeah i mean we've been planning on talking about this for like the last few episodes but then russia invaded ukraine I mean, and then, then russia invaded ukraine <laughs> <laughs> and then i got cancer and then michael got covid life you know, happens. it's just it's been yeah life yeah. happens um but this is definitely an extremely important issue yeah. And one thing that's kind of interesting, so this, the issue of, uh, of gay rights was one of the first issues that really got me interested in politics. Mm. Like when I was in high school, I mean, I, I had already, I had always been interested in politics, like, you know, with the Iraq war and, you know, my elementary school teachers that I was arguing with when I was like six or seven. Um, but like, this was the thing that really got me involved in a more in a deeper mm. level um and what's kind of discouraging is that i feel like a lot of people a lot of political activists and to some extent myself have felt for a while that this issue is settled yeah. you know when when marriage equality happened the issue was settled. Yeah. All right. Looking at the polling data for how much people support LGBT rights at this point, this issue is settled. And what I think is important to note, based on all of the new laws that have been cropping up, the executive orders that have been cropping up, this issue is very much not yeah. settled. All right. And I feel like there's, there's probably some people out there specifically people in the LGBTQ community that might be listening and be like, duh, that's what we fucking been telling you. Duh. And, and yeah, fair. But, but I think that this is, this should be a wake up call to all activists. Yeah. Now, one thing that's kind of interesting. And one of the things I want to make a point about is that it felt like during the Trump administration, there was actually less discussion about this. Mm. You know, there wasn't really discussion in terms of progressing LGBTQ rights, 
because no progress was going to happen under Trump. But there also wasn't a lot of conversation about regressing it. Now, I, again, I just want to make it clear. We're grading on a bell yeah. curve. <laughs> all right. So Trump, in a lot of ways, was terrible for LGBTQ. Yeah. People, oh, yeah. All right. He 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 banned trans people from the military. He he signed an executive order that made it so that um, that made it so that uh, LGBTQ uh, refugees or, or, or asylum seekers would no longer be considered because like they, they didn't view escaping sexual violence because of that, having that identity, um, as being a legitimate reason to seek asylum. That was terrible. But at the same time, again, grading on a very, you know, very much a bell curve, Donald Trump was the most pro LGBT Republican president that we have ever had. Which is saying a something. That's a, Which that's is a massive, something. yeah, that's a ridiculously low bar. Well, a ridiculously low bar. But, but remember, this was a guy, he was the first Republican nominee to even say LGBT mm-hmm. during the Republican National Convention. Um, he, I mean, there is that, there is that famous video of him, um, like, waving a rainbow flag at one of his rallies, which no Republican would ever do that. Like before, before Trump, no Republican ever did that during, uh, before Trump. Um, he, you know, he, he, he famously said like, I will protect the LGBT people, uh, after the Pulse nightclub shooting. Now it was all talk, but it, I mean, at least he said sure. something. Um, and also he really did not like at, at no point did he really make an attempt to walk back marriage equality he he kind of just said like yeah no that's that's the law now so you know what what are you gonna do like that really wasn't a priority under the trump administration you know yeah and boy did the republicans have a backlash against that (laughs) not against trump well well, and this not against trump but this is this is one of the things that i think is important to note because ron desantis arguably is worse than Donald Trump, mm. especially on this yeah. issue. And remember, he's the front runner in the polling f- to get the Republican nominee to nomination in 2024. Yeah. So I think it's important for us to break down this bill, talk about what it actually does, why it's why it's important, yeah. and how it could potentially cause further problems for the LGBTQ community down the road. Yeah. So this is officially named the Parental Rights and Education Bill. Uh, it was passed in late February by the House. It passed through the Senate, was signed by the governor, and it goes into effect on July 1st, in assuming no legal injunctions. Um, yeah. It's the, the, main, uh, the main provision, which is at issue in this bill, that this folk getting a lot of the attention and 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 justifiably should get a lot of the attention makes kind of a relatively vague but overtly threatening uh restriction um in order to intimidate teachers and and school administrators to basically force all p all all teachers and school administrators to pretend that lgbtq people just don't exist yeah. So the specific provision reads, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or 
in a manner that is not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. Yeah. Now, if that sounds vague, it's because it is. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that's kind of interesting, um, Vox did a really, a really great breakdown of this, is that the purpose of this bill, seemingly, is to be vague. Yes. All right? So, so advocates of the bill, or at least advocates of the bill that are trying to make the argument that it's not discriminatory, are pointing out the fact that it does not explicitly say you can't say gay or you can't say homosexual or you can't say transgender. It doesn't specifically say that. It couches it in seemingly neutral language. Yes. So it says sexual orientation or gender identity. But what's interesting is that the fact that it doesn't say gay, ironically, that the don't say gay bill does not say gay, is part of what makes it so insidious. So there's a few layers to that. The first layer is the fact that the vagueness allows for its enforcement to be widely interpreted. Yeah. So there's actually been court cases in the past. It was called the uh, Kieshen versus Board of Regents, where the court struck down this huge series of laws in New York that were trying to prevent communists from being able to teach. And it was struck down because it so it had really vague language. It was saying that you can't you can't employ anybody that quote advises or teaches the doctrine of forceful overthrow of the government, which is such a broad statement. In fact, it's broad to the point where a an interpretation of that law could mean that you don't teach the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so so this was so this was struck down, and the basically the precedent that was set was, quote, that, that people of, quote, common intelligence must necessarily guess at its meaning and defer to its application. So basically, if a person of common intelligence cannot tell you what the hell this means because it's so vague, yeah. it's not constitutional. Yeah. It cannot be enforced. And the thing is, that is part of what makes this law so insidious because it doesn't define what it means by class instruction, which is important. And I'll, we'll talk about that more in just a second. It does not define what it means by age appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, you know, it, it is unclear about what it means by sexual orientation or gender identity, yeah. because could you theoretically say that a teacher that maybe that is gay you know, maybe a woman who's married to a woman who has a, a picture of her wife on her desk and a student asks them about it and they say, oh, that that's my wife. Could you reasonably say that that's class instruction? Hmm. Now, the important thing to note about this is its enforcement. And this is the second part. Yes, all right. Key. The enforcement is similar to that Texas abortion law that Michael and I warned you all about. Yeah, well, we so, were like, this is a new pattern of enforcement that's going to enable people to evade the the uh, review of laws for unconstitutionality. Yep. This is that. <laughs> yep, they're doing that. So they're deputizing parents to file lawsuit against local school boards that they feel have violated this law. And because it's so vague, the concern is less about 
individual parents that are able to sue schools. The concern is about the fear of parents doing that. Yeah. So there will be schools and there will be individual teachers that were, will overcorrect. Yeah, for sure. You know, through policy because they don't want to be sued. So a school board could think, well, this is super vague and I don't know what they mean by this. So just to be, just to be very uh, secure and safe, we're going to say that, um, you're not allowed to say gay. You're not allowed to talk about being gay. If a student comes up to you and says that they're gay, you can't say anything. Mm -hmm. If a student has gay parents, you can't even acknowledge their existence. Yeah. All right. Because the, the fear is some crazy ass parent is going to hear their kid come home and say, oh, my, my teacher today talked about her wife. Yeah. What does that mean? And then the teacher's just going to sue them. Yeah. It literally. That's a, that's a valid concern. It literally sets the bar of enforcing this law as low as the most conservative, like most uh, litigious yes. parent. It means that any school district, even suspected of violating the law, can be subjected to like these crushing legal fees um, because it, it enables the parents to actually get monetary damages plus uh, reasonable attorney's fees. So if they prevail in court, they, make, they can make money off of it. It's like, and the vagueness means that anything that doesn't you know pass pass the sniff test of like you know an anti lgbtq sommelier of a smeller <laughs> like <laughs> can can ultimately like be really problematic for teachers and schools and so like like you know w when they talk about the effect of this on like free speech the term they use is a chilling effect right that like Maybe you're not banning speech, but the but the impact of a law that you have is such that it it causes speech to be dampened, to chill. Yeah. And and this is that on steroids. This is like it's not just a chilling effect. This is like a freezing effect. They're just getting yeah. like totally extinguishing um, discussion of of these issues at all from schools. And the thing is that like that's the point that's not an accident yeah. and like yeah to nathan's point like the vagueness is both a benefit and a detriment to this law right it's a benefit yeah. in that it enables the law to be at so broad that it can have a maximal uh impact on the schools of, and teachers ability to discuss gender and sexual orientation uh in their schools uh, the the detriment is potentially to the law anyway is potentially that it is unconstitutionally vague. But even yeah. that requires that this law be able to be challenged. And so, like, you know, potentially by the Supreme Court, exactly. Which you know that could take a long time. <laughs> it could take a long time. Yeah. And there's currently a um, six, a three. six three conservative majority exactly. on the court. Exactly. And that and so that's the thing. Like, it would be one thing if this law were just shittily written, you know, if yeah. it were just vague, which it is, which it obviously is, but, but in that, in that being poorly written, it is doing exactly what it's intended to do. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose that fact in the seeming, you know, uh, innocuous nature of the language. Right. Like you read like, oh, you can't discuss sexual orientation or gender identity with kindergarten through third grade. It's like, well, that's obviously a huge restriction, 
but like kindergarten through third grade while well, it's fourth grade and up. And then it's like, nope, or in a major th- amount that's not age appropriate, which just like expands it to every grade in, and without standards about age appropriateness or any of the, th- yeah. the definitions that Nathan mentioned, it just yeah. expands it, you know, to cover the entire topic in any school related environment. Yeah. Which by the way, so it will, it will take effect on July 1st. Right. And the, the depart part of the bill requires that the department of education in Florida, uh, update its standards to comply with the bill. Mm-hmm. Meaning they're going to have to, they're going to have to define what they mean by age appropriate, but that doesn't happen for a year. Yeah. Which yeah. means that the definition of age appropriate is just going to be in limbo for a year. Yeah. And again, the only way that gets enforced is through parent suing. Mm-hmm. So a parent can very easily sue a school or sue a teacher for, you know, for in, of any age group because they don't think that it's age appropriate. And also keep in mind that because it's enforced through lawsuits, just because the Florida Department of Education decides this is the definition of age appropriate, it doesn't mean that when they go to the courts, that the courts are going to agree with that definition, yeah. which means that the teachers, regardless, or the, 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 the parents, regardless of what the Department of Education decides, the parents can still sue teachers that they think are violating that, that age appropriateness. Yeah. And age appropriate is, is so broad. It's so different based on, based on the specific kid, based on the parents. Yeah. I mean, based on the subject matter, there's nothing inherently 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 age related about sexual orientation or gender identity. There isn't. But but like that's what they're trying to to enforce. And the thing about this, the other thing is like you might say like, hey, guys, like, okay, You know, we haven't proved that there's nefarious intent here. They've written a vague bill. Maybe it's just shitty, you know. What like what are the reasons that they want that they think that this bill should be enforced? And so like according to the sponsors, it's simply a ban on teaching very young children about sex, right? They they just they just wanted to specifically prevent uh quote groomers, right? So gay and trans they're, they're, groomers are not a their thing. contention that gay and trans teachers attempt to corrupt and, indoct- and indoctrinate children. Uh, via explicit classroom materials, right? So like Ben Shapiro said, uh, the measure uh, devoted to, quote, protecting small children from the predations of adults. Um, and Christina Peshaw, uh, DeSantis's press secretary, called the, uh, the bill uh, the anti-grooming bill um, and called anyone that opposes it probably a groomer. <laughs> um and grooming is not a thing yeah, so let's start there that's so that's fucked up thing. first of all and it it goes back to like a very age old uh claim about the lgbtq community which yeah. is just about vilification and it's that the gay agenda is trying to turn your kid gay and it's just yeah. like just the furthest thing from reality you know, I just, I just got to tell you, you know, when I was, when I was in elementary school, my, um, my teachers, they showed me beauty and the beast. And next thing I knew it, you know, I started being attracted to animals. 
Yeah, Bell's fucked up. They were dude. grooming me. <laughs> they were grooming me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so like, so, it's such bullshit. And 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 also, also like, even using that example, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. were they grooming me to be heterosexual? Because again, your your argument is that it's neutral. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. That sexual orientation is neutral. So if you're if you're saying that that's a neutral term, that it's not blatantly discriminatory, that that's neutral, then wouldn't the next logical step be that okay, well then. Talking about heterosexual relationships, <laughs> that's also banned. Everybody everybody in any movie or book or anything has to just be in a blank bodysuit. Yeah. No face, <laughs> nothing, no indicating characters. It's all the human from community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so I honestly I think that I, I think that gay parents should respond to this bill by suing school boards every time they show any movies or, or read any books that portray heterosexual relationships. I think they should That's do a good, that. It's a really good idea. And the, so the thing though, the thing about this claim though, that it's about like, well, we don't want sexually explicit material taught in the classroom. And really that's what it's about is that it's refuted by a couple things. One, the rhetoric surrounding the bill at the press conference yeah. at the signing of the bill, DeSantis, he said that uh, quote, Teaching kindergarten age kids that they can be whatever they want to be is inappropriate for children, which is clearly an, like an overt reference to gender identity. Um, yeah. But the other thing is, yeah, they, you don't you don't want you don't want kids to be what they want to be. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I think that's hilarious and ironic <laughs> that like we literally tell I kids mean, they can grow up to be whatever they want. Yeah, except that's like a that's gay that's, or trans person. I mean, there's literally there's like fucking Sesame Street songs about yeah. that, like. But it's also re- refuted by the bill and legislative history. So Republican lawmakers rejected efforts to turn the measure into a straightforward prohibition on sex education in early grades. Obviously, that would still be shitty because like yeah. sex education should be fine. But like if your actual goal is no sexually explicit material for young children or you know, material that's not age appropriate, that is sexually explicit, then that should be totally satisfactory. Yeah. But but that's not what they were going for and it's very clear. Yeah. They're trying to exert control. And this is going to have a few terrible effects. Now the the obvious one is going to be the effects on teachers. Mm-hmm. All right? You're going to have teachers quitting. You're going to have sure. high quality teachers quitting because why the hell would you want to like deal with this shit. I mean, teachers already deal with enough shit. Yeah. Why would you want to have to deal with the possibility of being sued because you know, you you said that you, Pete Buttigieg was the second, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> led the Department you, of Transportation, you, like Exactly. Like why would you why would you want to have to deal with that? Yeah. But here's the really insidious part of it. And this is this is what makes the framing of this so much more disgusting. So the framing of this is protect the children. Mm. All right. That's what they're saying. Protect the children. All right. That's what they care about. But here's the problem. So, uh, so the, the president of the American psychological association, um, Frank Worrell released a statement about this bill. He said, quote, prohibiting classroom discussion on these topics 
sends the message that identifying as LGBTQ is inherently wrong, stigmatizing, and marginalizing children who may realize their difference at a young age. Psychological research has shown that, that increased social isolation and stigma can lead to depression, anxiety, self-harm, and even suicide. The Trevor Project did a study in which they were trying to analyze the number of LGBT people, the percentage of LGBTQ people that attempt suicide. All right. This was published in uh, March of 2001. And they found that LGBT youth, and that's youth between the ages of 13 and 18, that in just the last year, just the last year, 19% have reported attempting suicide. That is a fifth. That is almost a fifth. All right? Almost a fifth of LGBTQ youth, ages 13 to 18, have reported attempting suicide. And we also know that when you remove that stigma, when they grow up in environments that are supportive and loving and not discriminatory based on sexual orientation and gender identity, we know that those numbers become comparable to their peers. All right, studies have shown that too. So you say that you're trying to protect children. You are killing children. Yeah. This bill is going to kill children. You say you're protecting them, but with your bigotry, your laws, and your silence, you are killing them. And now it's time for more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because rock me mama like a wagon wheel. Yeah. Rock me mama any way you feel. Mm. Hey, mama, rock me. <laughs> that's, is wow, that's nice. I never yeah. knew if that was song was about someone's actual mother. No, or no, some, or they did the it's, weird it's, thing where they call it's their the weird. It's the weird it's thing the weird where they call thing. their. Yeah, that's it's definitely that. Sounds like 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 a southbound sure. train. Like what 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 is their actual? How is yeah, their what, mama what actual rock mother like rocks a, like a southbound train? <laughs> It's like that's that that's how you make shaken baby syndrome. Like that's that's Ooh. not good. Don't do that. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, we've learned our lesson to make the world a better place. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> don't don't rock don't rock babies. Don't rock babies. But 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 rock me, mama. Yeah. And that's a good idea, actually. That's like a general theme: is we should make the world a better place, right? We should. That's a good idea. Shit! So, shit! So, shit! I just realized that's why we do this. That's that's that is. Uh, okay. All right. We We're do on that. It now. We always do I that. Okay, we should really we learn okay, to cut okay. this part out. <clears throat> we really should. We do it every time. And yeah. it's like, I just, it's, it's like, it's completely yeah, useless. We, should write we it only down. do it. We, should write it down. we only do it because like, we've always done it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like literally the argument from tradition Status fallacy. Quo. Yeah. Yeah. Depressing. <laughs> so Michael, why do we do tips for good? Oh wait, <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, so Michael, what's our tip for good this week? Well, our tip for good this week is check yourself. <laughs> Which is specifically like, uh, you know, with with 
Nathan's health experience, like the tip for good we wanted this week was to, um, you know, pay attention to the way that, you know, your body is like changing in different ways. If you feel discomfort, you know, I was trying to do research on best self checks for cancer. Right. And it, what really like cancer can show up in all kinds of different forms, right? It can be anywhere on your body. It can have so many different symptoms. It's really difficult to just check by yourself. But one thing you can do is to know your body, know how you usually feel and not just write off changes that you do notice. Don't just write them off as no big deal. Go get them checked out. So yeah. things like, you know, oh, did you just have, you know, consistent heartburn that's come up out of nowhere? Go get that checked out. You feel yeah. you feel something, a, a lump on your body, uh, something on your skin, like get it checked out. The, yeah. You know, you're not responsible for knowing what may or may not be wrong, but you're the best defense when, when it comes to finding, you know, cancer early. Yeah. And it's not to say that if you do find a lump somewhere, that means it's definitely cancer and you should start freaking out. Of course but, not. You know, it's, it's better to better to get it checked out and have that and, and know that it's not that than to, you know, for it to end up being that and you not have done anything for sure. And of course, like this is all easier said than done, especially if you have health insurance, if you're uninsured, it's much harder just to go on a trip yeah, to the doctor, absolutely. but there, absolutely. you know, there are resources out there and you know, you start showing symptoms or something like that, you know, just you bite the bullet and go try to get it checked out. Yeah. And that's tips for good. And that's tips for good. So for our next segment, we're talking about a super worrying trend, uh, in 1940 where the Nazis were burning books to control the flow of information. Oh shit! Wait, sorry. Oh, that's no, that's that, 2022. That, that, that this is 2022. And we're yeah. but same topic, just right now. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. wait, wait, I thought that. Hold on, hold on. I thought that we already figured out mm. that like because the Nazis were doing it, sure. that, that that is it's bad. You mean the the cliche trope of if Nazis did it, it's bad, which is like almost I, always true. Yeah, yeah, you'd think we would have learned that, but we haven't gotten rid of Nazis and nor have we gotten rid of their habits. Um, <laughs> so we're talking about book banning specifically. Um, yeah. And, you know, you might wonder why we're talking about this. This is not necessarily a new topic, but it is, a, it is something that's gotten way worse. So yeah. according to the American Library Association, um, this year uh, they put out a report, as they do every year, uh, discussing... Uh, the number of challenges to library school and university materials. And in 2021, there were 729 challenges to materials in those categories. That's up from 156 challenges in 2020 and 377 challenges in 2019. So 2020 had you know a depressed number of challenges mainly because of COVID. But if we compare to 2019, the number of book challenges have almost doubled and each yeah. one of those challenges, you know, can contain more than one book. So the total count of individual books challenged in the United States in 2021 was 1,600 books, <laughs> which is staggering by itself, except the American Library Association, 
also estimates that approximately 90% of book challenges actually remain unreported to them and receive no media attention. And it doesn't account for like silent censorship, which is a practice where people go into these libraries and destroy or hide or steal the books there. So even though they're in the catalog, no one can find or read them, which is in fact an even growing problem among librarians and school administrators to circumvent the process that, you know, that uh, challenges and provides oversight for these books or for these, you know, book banning, you know, uh, challenges. And then they, they remove these books from the shelves specifically to try to avoid having them challenged in the first place. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is that frequently when they are challenged, the challenges are dismissed. Yeah. Like, like, uh, like for example, there've been a few cases in which there have been, there've been some, uh, some parents that have straight up tried to call for criminal charges on, uh, for librarians. <laughs> and like, those have been laughed out of the room, Yeah. but that threat still is very real. So if you're a librarian and there's a book where you're like, wow, this book right here is probably going to piss off some parent mm-hmm. and some crazy ass idiotic parent is going to be like, is going to come for my job or, try to get me criminally charged or drag me through a very public shaming in this community that I am a part of yeah, and yeah. potentially alienate me from my community. I don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm just not going to have this book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, okay, obviously this is bad, you know, and it, and it's bad because, we want people, especially in schools and universities, to be able to access the information and the stories in these books, right? Yeah. But it's even worse because uh, the challenges skew very strongly against LGBTQ uh, and like themes and protagonists and against issues of racism. So a study by PEN America, which is a nonprofit that advocates for freedom of uh, expression. um, They did a review and found 1600, similarly 1600 books banned in schools um, with, or yeah, uh, you know, over like nine months ending in 2021 um, banning like 1100 different books by 800 authors. Right. And they found that 41% of them, featured uh, a character who was a person of color. 33% of the banned books uh, included LGBTQ themes, protagonists, or strong secondary characters. And 22% directly addressed issues of racism and race. So these the books that are being pulled from shelves are about educating and including and understanding like uh, disadvantaged or minority groups, right? Yeah. And that's a real problem when, mm. you know, these bans are targeted specifically at our youth. Yeah. So let's, let's look at what they're arguing. Yeah. All right. So the argument is, as always, parent choice. And the thing is, when you look at that part, that, that argument on its face, it seems like a very compelling argument. Sure. Because, you know, naturally, if you're, if you're a parent, you want to have agency over your kid's life. Obviously, 
you want to make sure that um, you are making the final decisions on your kid, obviously. Yeah. But I think that it is also important to have some nuance in that discussion because we do recognize that there are some ways in which it really doesn't matter what a parent thinks that schools are going to teach certain facts. Like, like for example, a, you know, if a, if a parent decides like two plus two equals three, schools are not then going to start teaching that two plus two equals three. They're, yeah. they're going to teach that two plus two equals four because it does. No matter how offensive two yeah. plus two equals four is <laughs> as it is to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and again, that's a, that's a, that seems like a silly example and all, but, but again, when we're talking about education, which ideally is is driven by research, is driven by what we know to be true based on research, not just what we th- some parent thinks to be true because of emotion. Yeah. Then we 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 really have to be prioritizing the truth, mm-hmm. and the truth is that the argument that that all of these uh, all these parents keep making about like say say there's sexually explicit stuff or even stuff that has LGBT people is that that's that's grooming my kid all right if you show if you show my kid a book or if you allow my kid to read a book that has like sexually explicit imagery then that is going to cause them to be sexually groomed or sexually traumatized or or whatever but here's the thing there's absolutely no research that shows that reading about gay people makes you gay evident also by the fact that like there's never been any bans on books because they had heterosexual people in a romance and gay and gay people still exist. So like, and they presumably read those. Yeah, they just never books. read any of those books. <laughs> they all skipped I Romeo and Juliet in high school. Yeah. Um, but like, but what's, what's also, what's also important to note is that those types of books, depending, depending on the books, can also often teach kids important lessons about consent. Now, mm. to be clear, I'm not necessarily saying that you should be putting erotica in like a, a first grader's sure. library. I'm not. I'm not saying do that. But I'm those, saying this that, is also not the erotica is not also the books that are being banned. Like, yeah, that's these not, are like, that's not the books that are, those know, are already those are already <laughs> these are not like in there. Nobel Prize winning authors that are getting that yeah, are getting banned exactly. in, case, in some cases. Exactly. So like, I mean, obviously there there is a certain line because there are some things that. Kids are just not going to understand. I mean, like you're not going to you're not going to put like a um, you know a a science textbook intended for college students in an elementary school library because there's sure I mean it's going to be useless. Yeah. they're not going to understand it. They're not at that level. But when it comes to when it comes to issues of of sexual orientation, mm-hmm. it can actually be very um it can actually be very powerful for LGBT youth who are, yeah. um, who are, might be struggling with their identity or not sure about their identity to be able to see that, to be able to see that representation. Yep. It might be legitimizing for people that, you know, that might be people of color to read about characters that are like them yeah. that might maybe go through struggles that they also go through yeah. and to see that. Um, see, the issue is that parents seem to often have this idea of what is going to be traumatizing for their kids because parents often don't see kids as human. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, in, to an extent, they're not fully formed humans. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, it, it does make sense to, it, it does make sense to adjust things based on a kid's age. Yeah, of course, of course. And, but the thing is also like, we don't have to like settle a debate at like when sex education yeah. is like yeah. the right time in order to like recognize that like the intent here. So the traditional book banning intent is often about that. It's like Catcher in the Rye. It's got an explicit sex scene. It's, it's that stuff. Yeah. This wave, this recent wave of book banning intent is about more than that. I think the common yeah. threads are, deeper than that it's not it's not just like explicit like sexually explicit themes but cases that are just like multiple cases where there isn't sexually explicit like they're not banned for being sexually explicit but for containing lgbtq content or like talking about race and and to your point there's so much value ask ask any parent what books their kids gravitate to what books resonate? If you're like reading to your child, what book resonates with your kid? It's the books where they see something of themselves in the book. They see, yeah. they like admire the character. Or they, they think it's funny because they like tacos just like the dragon or, or that yeah. kind of stuff. And so like including LGBTQ characters to normalize that is so valuable, including like stories of, you know, um, you know, stories depicting like black and, and protagonists of color is so valuable. And and you know, you know that the intention is terrible and going to be harmful to these kids, like because of what books they're banning. For example, one of the most challenged books of the past year was a children's book called Ruby Bridges Goes to School, <laughs> which chronicles Bridges' experience in, white dress. in 1960 as the first black child integrated into New Orleans, New Orleans school. Like, in what world could that be viewed as harmful? In what world is that worth banning? Yeah. And so, like, and so that's what really spooks me. The other thing is, like, as I mentioned, you know, banning books is not, like, a new practice. But usually it's done, like, district by district, or even school by school or library by library, it's kind of slow, it's arduous. And to your point, Nathan, most of the challenges fail. Yeah. But Republican-controlled states, including Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, Texas, are now pushing statewide rules to make it easier for books to be removed from schools uh, than it was previously. For instance, um, in Texas, uh, Governor Greg Abbott was pressuring school boards to remove what they call what he calls pornography from schools, specifically a list of 850 books, including many black and LGBTQ authors, like including, as I mentioned, like Pulitzer Prize winning authors um, because he thought they were bad or like, or like in Florida, DeSantis signed a bill last month that requires schools and libraries to post information about their collections. Okay, seems fine. And seek community input about materials. Okay, maybe that's fine. Except for the fact that the law also requires that the Department of Education collect and publish a report of which books have been removed in any district across the state. Basically, crowdsourcing a list of books to ban. So like, 
And not only are they trying to do it in schools, a number of Republican-controlled legislatures have also introduced legislation to remove, to ban books from public libraries that serve adults, which is a super unprecedented yeah. uh, thing. And generally, these proposals would strip protections from the libraries and from educators against obscenity laws, allowing um, prosecutors to basically go after these libraries if the libraries have any material that they think counts as obscenity. That right there is fascist. It's fucking I mean, fascist. There, there can be... I mean, look, I think that there can be some arguments... Bad arguments, but some yeah. arguments about like about kids. Yeah, and I and I even think that you know there there might be some discussions to have about you know what's appropriate and what's not and what what constitutes age appropriateness and what doesn't. Sure. But like All good that right there, that right there is just fascism. All right, just yeah. flat out, that's just fascism. Um, so and and, and even when we're talking about kids, I mean. There have been systems in place in plenty of schools where if there is a parent who says, don't want my uh, my kid to read this specific list of books, you know, the school can be like, all right, well, then we will make sure to put your stu your your uh, your child on a list and um, they will not be allowed to check out these uh, these specific books. And boom, problem solved. Yeah. But that's not where they want to stop it at. Yeah. All right. Because they want to impose it on other people. Yeah. Because because the the argument that the argument that people that are against these bans make is okay. Well, you ruin it for everybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, for parents that maybe want their kids to read that stuff, you're saying they can't read it. Like you're saying you want control over your kids. Fine. Let's have a system in place that says that if you want to say that you don't want your kid reading this specific book, yeah. then they don't read it. Then put the, put them on that list. Yeah. All right. But if uh, if they're not on that list, then they get to check the book out. Yeah. That way you're not ruining it for ruining it for everybody else. Now look, I still am going to disagree with the fact that you made that choice, but it's your kid. Yeah. You know. And if it's really about kids' choice, then that should satisfy you. Yeah. I think that's such a key point because banning books is actually really politically unpopular on yeah. like both sides of the aisle. <laughs> But and and that's 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 what I think is the most hilarious part of this because remember the Dr. Seuss stuff? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. so when what's funny is banning books is so unpopular that when the Republicans were able to find an issue where they could remotely claim that books were being banned, yeah. which they weren't. Yeah. Like remember with the Dr. Seuss thing, Dr. Seuss, the company decided to stop publishing a few books. It was only like, it was like six or five or six yeah, of, of six the of the shitty ones. Yeah. Six of the shitty ones because they depicted racist material. Republicans were smart enough back then to know that book banning is so unpopular that all they need to do is say, this is book banning. And people would be like, Oh wow, that is kind of bullshit. Yeah. Now it wasn't book banning, but if, if they're talking about that, if they're saying that that's bad, that that violates free speech, that that's cancel culture. Mm -hmm. How the hell can you turn around and not say that this is cancel culture? Yeah. All right. That this is violating free yeah. speech. That this is, you know, that these are book bans that are fascistic. But the point, Nathan, is what you mentioned. It's the fact that a, a minority group of people are trying to exercise an outsized amount of control by 
by limiting information, by limiting access to material. And that is like, and that's what's one of the things that's so insidious about this is that it's not popular, but like these, these vocal, this vocal minority group is able to, because we don't have, or like, because they're trying to disrupt our protections for, you know, kind of free information, especially for kids is like actually getting traction on, um, you know, controlling this information. Um, and that's really like nerve wracking, especially like, like a number of civil rights and civil liberties groups, which, you know, when you say those things, you think, Oh, conservative, you know, traditional Republican, um, recognize that these restrictions are not about protecting kids. They're not about, um, you know, making sure good information is out there or banning smut or, you know, obscenity or any of that stuff. They're about enshrining the values of a particular group of parents, specifically like white conservatives, over the priorities and experiences of the diverse communities that these school libraries serve. Like, children of color constituted a majority of public K-12 through student body since 2014. 55% of students in public schools are, are children of color. One in five members of Gen Z report being a member of the LGBTQ community. One in 10 millennials report the same. And, and they're also more secular, and yet this small minority group is trying to just limit their access to representation and information uh, in libraries, and it's very nerve-wracking. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hats of, of the, the Week. week. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nathan, who are our asshats this week? Well, Michael, we have a whole slate of asshats mm, this week. Good. All right. And uh, a lot of you are probably not going to recognize any of these names unless you are from Frederick County, Virginia. Which, who but knows, Michael maybe are, are, all of our audience is from our hometown. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe they are. Um, but Michael and I are from Frederick County, Virginia, and we are fucking pissed off at a bunch of our supervisors from our home county. Uh, specifically, supervisors uh, Josh Ludwig, Sean Grabber, Blaine Dunn, and Doug McCarthy. Oh. Now, why am I? So, why are we so pissed off at these? Why these people? Why are they our asshats? Well, it's because they recently voted to cut the Frederick County Public School budget by twenty-two million dollars. That's just what every school needs—a smaller budget. Yeah, exactly. It's really not like kick we, them into gear so they can really it's not like make their own everyone, money. Everyone, yeah, it's not like everyone. Like that I've talked to in my entire life, whether they were Democrats or Republicans, universally acknowledge the fact that schools are underfunded and the teachers are underpaid. Yeah. Like no, no, and, no. And what's what's fucking bullshit is the reason why they're doing this. Now, again, I I, I will acknowledge the fact that we're talking about this because I got a personal stake into it. <laughs> uh, I, I I mean, I was in the Frederick County public school system, and look, I had a mostly good experience, but there were definitely a lot of issues. A lot of that did come from lack of funding and shit. But like, um, the reason why they're doing it is because they had requested a line in budget 
that they hadn't gotten yet because they were terrified that taxpayer money would be used to fund critical race theory. Jesus fucking And because Christ. they didn't get that line in budget, they said, all right, fuck you. We're cutting the school budget by $22 million. We thought you guys were going to spend $22 million on critical race theory. Like, so, what, what, Jesus. Like, what the fuck do they think is happening? Like, and also, how is a line in budget going to, like, what, is there an after-school club called the Critical Race Theory <laughs> Club? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just, I don't know what they're trying to get from that. And some of the fuck, some of the responses that some of these asshats have had when they've been challenged on this. So like the treasurer like was, was talking to the board and was saying, Hey, we just figured out the, uh, you know, we just figured out the salaries for the teachers in the next fiscal year. Um, we are really concerned about the hurdles that this will create in terms of hiring new teachers mm -hmm. and grabber who, by the way, he thinks that the, that the cuts aren't deep enough. He said, quote, to your point, Mr. Treasurer, I really don't care. Fuck. Jesus. This guy's a fucking He just doesn't supervisor. give a shit about kids. He just doesn't give a shit about kids. He just doesn't give a shit about, about kids. Like, oh God. like, at a time when there is a national conversation about how underpaid teachers are, all right, the idea that I mean, first off, the idea that anybody would be against raising school budget is already unforgivable. The idea that someone would be a shitbag enough to cut a school's budget. I mean, unforgivable, unforgivable. And credit to the credit to the supervisors that oppose this. So uh, Chairman Charles DeHaven, um, supervisors uh, Judith uh, McCann Slaughter and Bob Wells uh, did not support the measure. So do credit to credit to them. Fuck all the other supervisors. Yeah. Well, congratulations to the four asshats of the aspocalypse <laughs> <laughs> for being our. <laughs> I'm just I'm that, that sounds so dirty. That just sounds so dirty. <laughs> I, know. I know that sounds like yeah. what happens after like an expired bean burrito. <laughs> Well, you know what? Josh Ludwig, Sean Grabber, Blaine Dunn, and Doug McCarthy, they are expired burritos. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations for being our Ass Hats of, of the Week. week. So, as is sometimes the case, sometimes Republicans say something that's accurate, but they're still wrong. <laughs> so, so in the case of Tell me more. attorney Ashley Keller, who is speaking to the Federalist Society, which is a conservative legal activism group, he said, quote, massive corporations are pursuing a common and mutually agreed upon agenda to destroy American freedom. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, wow. He's really, that seems, he's really that progressive. Seems progressive. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then yeah, and then he went on to to describe how uh, how companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, Coca Cola, Goldman Sachs, J P Morgan, Twitter, Walmart, okay, all all terrible companies, all terrible companies, all terrible companies. Are, okay, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, are completely and unabashedly 
opposed to individual rights. He said, quote, defenders of freedom. I agree. Must face, I agree. Oh, my God. Yeah, must face reality. The Chamber of Commerce is not our friend. The C-suite gar- uh, grandees who finance it are not our friends either. They were erstwhile allies of convenience, and they are now the enemies of a freedom-loving people. I was like, man. Wow. Wow. This guy I, yeah. is like, oh my God. he's ready to like take down the yeah. bourgeoisie. No, dude, welcome welcome to the movement. I know, from the you Federalist know? Society, welcome, no less. Welcome to the proletariat. Yeah, the people that were like, you know, usually radical free market theorists, they have come, they have really come around. Except that he's not talking about... Oh, no, oh, fuck, about, not an except, not an except. Yeah. <laughs> except he's not talking about, you know, their, their, their common profit motive that causes them to depress wages and... Uh, increase prices and uh, put out competition and suppress uh, competition in favor of monopoly. None of that stuff. No, no, no. Okay, no. but 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 the union busting. That's what they're talking no, about, no, right? No, that's he's, no, he's he. Not they're the, pretty not the union against busting? unions. Yep. Still. Okay. Okay. I let me hold on. Let me let me think for a second. Yep. Uh, is it um, so 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 minimum minimum wage? It's not minimum wage. Not minimum wage. Not in minimum fact, wage? they would prefer okay. no minimum wage. The federal no minimum society. wage. Yeah. yeah. They're aligned on. So the real reason that these corporations are the are the enemy of the common freedom loving man is um, they're too woke. Yes, corporations and the old white people that run them are too woke. And ruining no, America. That's, that's not it. That's not it. That can't be right. <laughs> So literally, these people are people that, I mean, the, the the I know that you've probably heard this a thousand times, but the top one-tenth of one percent in the United States own approximately the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90%. That's not what's ruining America? No, that's not it. It's not it. It's that, like, uh, it's that the, they the want to throw their weight people... behind, you know, some equal justice stuff to get some social cred. Yeah. So here's the ridiculous part of this. And I mean, well, one of the ridiculous parts of this, because this is just a <laughs> this is just a whole fucking pile on. Um, so the, in that in that whole spiel, they even acknowledge that these people were our allies yeah. out of convenience. Because again, these people want to maintain the system. Like the people in the Federalist Society, they want to maintain the system that keeps all of those corporations in power yeah. in as much power as they want. Again, um, they oppose antitrust laws. Uh, they oppose uh, laws regulating anti-competitive practices. They oppose uh, raising the minimum wage. They oppose unions. They oppose uh, paid family re- leave. They oppose uh, raising the corporate tax rate. They oppose all of these things that would actually take these people out of power. But the one thing that they're saying, well, this is what makes them the enemy of the people. Yeah. Is that they don't hate gays and they don't hate black people. Yeah. That's the, it wouldn't I even mean, take them out. wouldn't even take them out of power. It would just help the, the, the a 90, 80 to 90% of people yeah. that aren't exceedingly wealthy a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like like and and here's here's the insidious part of it. Here's the really interesting and insidious part of it. Um I truly do believe that most of the most of the politicians at least and most of the activists at least that are now using the idea of corporate wokeism mm-hmm. 
as an attempt to try to garner antipathy towards these companies and to gain political power, they know full well what they're doing. Like they know exactly what they're doing. They know that their economic agenda benefits those corporations. They know that 100%. Sure. However, they see the writing on the wall and they realize that there is a lot of anti-corporate sentiment in this country yeah. on the right and on the left. Yes. And they are terrified that that anti-corporate sentiment on the right could potentially start to veer off into the direction of actual populism. Yes. So instead, they try to find stupid reasons to vilify these corporations while at the same time doing everything they can to keep those corporations in power. So case in point, let's talk about Disney for a sec. Yeah. All right. So what's interesting about this whole thing with Disney. So so some of a lot of you have probably heard that Republicans are now uh, making Disney the enemy. Like they're they're these calls for boycotts of Disney. So let's go back a little bit. When the don't say gay bill was being debated and was first announced, uh, Disney was pretty much silent on it. And it was then discovered that the Walt Disney Company had donated $190,000 to Florida Republicans weeks before, like, um, weeks before the, the bill had originally been introduced. Now, Disney, in a lot of ways, have has tried to every now and then passively express their support for, for movements and stuff. But, like, they really have tried to stay out of that type of part, those types of partisan politics. I mean, some of their, some of their movies can sometimes be like, you know, pro diversity, anti-racist, you know, some stuff like that. But, but at the same time, the company itself usually tries to stay out of that stuff. But when it was revealed, well, well first off, when it was revealed that they had been donating this money to anti-gay Republicans, there was a huge backlash among, uh, among leftists. Well, not even just leftists, just like a lot of the country. Yeah. They were saying, what the fuck? Yeah. You're, 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 you're supporting this. You're, you're trying to claim to be a company that supports, supports inclusivity and diversity, and you're supporting these Republicans. So then Disney comes out and actually, you know, reluctantly, says, okay, yeah, we're, we're against the don't say gay bill. Like we're, we're completely against it. And them reluctantly coming out against it has now prompted a bunch of Florida Republicans like Matt Gates, like Ron DeSantis to basically derail them as being infected with corporate wokeism. Yeah. But here's the reality of the situation. And this is something that I, I 100% think Ron DeSantis knows Matt Gates, not so sure. <laughs> I mean, he comes across as a Republican who's not in on the joke. Um, but like, Disney's one and only priority is to make money. Yeah. That's it. That That's what they want to do. The reason why they donated money to Republicans wasn't because they supported their anti-gay stuff. It was because they know that Republican politicians in Florida that they buy are going to give them 
things that they want. Mm -hmm. All right. So Disney relies on Republicans in Florida and Republicans in, in the, you know, in the United States Congress for that matter to um, continue to have laws that extend copyright, that make it so that their content does not become um, public domain, mm -hmm. that makes sure that uh, they don't have to pay a living wage, that makes sure that they, um, they can do as much as they want in order to bust unions for their workers. They rely on those Republican politicians to maintain their economic control. Yeah. But at the same time, they do also rely on consumers to buy their content. And the, the thing is, the social conservatism by its very nature is dying. Yeah. All right. Or at least is changing. Because by, its, by the nature of a society, the next generation will be different from the previous generation. And historically, at least on a social level, the next generation has been more socially progressive than the previous generation. All right? That is just how trends go. And Disney understands that. Disney was anti-Nazi at a time where that actually was controversial to be anti-Nazi. You know, mm -hmm. again, I'm, I'm talking the thirties. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Again, not 2021, <laughs> not 2021. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the thirties. All right. So, you know, Disney has created, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of older content that they have and, you know, not even super old content in some cases that does depict racial stereotypes, mm -hmm. but they're smart enough to know that, Zoomers, millennials are the future. And Zoomers and millennials are pro-LGBT. Yeah. And if they want to maintain them as consumers, they cannot be anti-gay. Yeah. All right? Because, because boomers, Gen X, they're dying off. All right? That's just reality. They're dying off. Previous generations of anti-gay sentiment are dying off. Now it's never going to completely die off. All right. You're always going to have like homophobes, but it's going to become an increasingly smaller and smaller market to the point where being against anti or being against gay marriage is going to be seen as basically the same thing as being pro segregation. Mm -hmm. That is where we're going. Yeah. And the polling shows that. Yeah. All right. They, Disney can read polls. All right. So according to uh, according to Gallup in 2021, 70 percent of Americans were pro marriage equality. Yeah. 70 percent, 69 percent believe that it is morally acceptable for uh, for there to be gay or lesbian relations. And uh, as of uh, as of 2019, 93 percent of people of Americans believe that uh, gays and lesbians should have equal rights as non-gays or non-lesbians in terms of job opportunities. Hmm. 93%. Yeah. So they know which way the wind is blowing and they're following the money. Yeah. So if you don't like the fact that Disney is like 
against the don't say gay bill, you don't like capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, because they're doing what financially makes more sense to them. They're going to support politicians that are, you know, that, that are going to be more economically conservative as much as they can, because they want to be able to control the policies that keep them in economic power, but they're also going to occasionally say stuff that is pro-gay. Yeah. You know, and they're also going to condemn laws that are anti-gay because they know that's the direction the com the country is going. And if you think that it's a principle, I mean, there's a there's a really nice and exquisite diamond encrusted bridge that is for sale and could be yours on Neptune. <laughs> Wow, this is getting even further away than usual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last time it was Mars. Uh, and here's why, all right? If they were truly principled in being, you know, pro-gay or pro-LGBTQ, then why is it that I can count on one hand the number of gay characters in Disney movies that are that have been mainstream Disney movies, that have been prominent characters yeah. that wasn't a blink and you miss it kiss or something. Yeah. The reason why I can only count that on one hand is because uh, of China. Hmm. Now I know that seems kind of random, but the thing is the Chinese market is closed down to movies that depict gay characters like as, yeah, as normal. All right. And that is such a large market that Disney doesn't want to risk that. So in their in their movies in their larger movies they avoid having prominently displayed gay characters because they don't want to miss out on that market so they're not principled so like if you're pro gay and you're celebrating if you're pro lgbt and you're celebrating disney for this like you shouldn't no. be yeah no way they're, you really yeah, shouldn't they be. just they just fucked up and 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 it's not that they fucked up it's that they fucked up what they meant to do Right. Like, yeah. it, it's so funny. Bob Capek, the CEO, said kind of like the quiet part out loud a little bit. So once they reversed their position, he was talking to a, at a shareholders meeting and said, our original approach, no matter how well intended, didn't quite get the job done. <laughs> the thing is, the job he's talking about is not what job the job he's talking about is PR. playing both sides of the field. PR. Exactly. Exactly. And so he would at the same, you know, in the same meeting, he said, I know many were upset that we did not speak out against the bill. We chose not to take a public position because we felt we could be more effective working behind the scenes directly with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. He also talked about being able to be more effective by showing it in their content rather than being explicit. So basically what he's saying is we thought we could be more effective and LGBTQ advocacy by being silent than by speaking. Yeah. And so, so what they failed to do was, was fly under the radar enough. Yeah. And like, and it's funny cause like we see that we've seen this pattern so many times before, like there's a bunch, there are a bunch of other employers in Florida that haven't had the scrutiny because they've successfully flown under the radar. Um, and like, <laughs> on on his oh shit road show, the CEO tried to give five million dollars to the human rights campaign, <laughs> and the president Joni Madison declined, said until we see them build on their public commitment and work with the LGBTQ advocates, 
um, they're not going to accept the money because yeah. they don't want to perpetuate this same pattern that we see. Yeah. Because to Nathan's point, you know, they're it's they're not about the issues. There's no yeah. the problem with corporate, corporate wokeism is not that they have opinions. It's that it's fake. Yeah, <laughs> it's that <laughs> it's, it's it's what the Warner Media CEO Jason Killer said on CNBC. It's when yeah. he was defending corporate wokeism, right? To Republicans, he said the truth. He said. Quote, I think it's a business issue. To be fair, this quote is him saying why they should take a pro-LGBTQ stance. He said, quote, I think it's a business issue. Yes, there's politics involved, but it's also a business issue in that we strongly believe that anti-LGBTQ legislation is anti-business. And we don't think that one person's life or one person's identity or one person's love is any less than or less worthy than another. So we feel very strongly about this one, and we feel that this is about the business as much as it is about the politics. What he's saying is, we're happy to take money from anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, why would, why would somebody just... Why, why, why would someone make the business decision to say that this entire group of people is just unworthy? Yeah. Like, why would you do that? Especially when sentiment towards that community is growing more and more positive with yeah. every year. Yeah. Now there's still, again, I, 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 as we, as is evident from the fact from our first segment, we are nowhere near to where we need to be. Yeah, of course. Politically. Yeah. But the sentiments of the next generation are pro LGBT. Yeah. And Disney knows that. Yeah. And it's a stupid business decision for them to like, for, for them to not acknowledge that for them to like, I mean, in a perfect world for them, at least, they would never have to take a stance on any of it. Yeah. And, you know, and anti-gay people and gay people could just spend their money mm-hmm. at, at Disney. Yeah. But they put themselves in a position where that just wasn't possible. Yeah. So, and and the, the really insidious part of this that is actually in some ways brilliant on the part of Republicans is that, again, they know that there is a lot of anti-corporate sentiment because people hate corporations because they're being fucked over by corporations. And they know that if they can make the conversation about something like this, about, ooh, you should hate Disney, they're terrible, they're pro-gay. Like, they know that if you can make the conversation about that, then the conversation isn't about taxes, it isn't about unions, it isn't about, in the case of Disney, copyright laws. And and what's hilarious is that there there are a lot of Republicans that have that are kind of recent additions to the Republican Party, at least in terms of uh, in terms of politicians, that are not in on the joke. Yeah. <laughs> because Marjorie Taylor Greene actually recently tweeted out saying, "Oh, I'll remember this the next time they want to renew copyright." Copyright. Mm-hmm. And it's like. You re- she you she doesn't it. she really doesn't she know she that. really doesn't know yeah it's it's actually kind of it's it's almost adorable if it weren't for the fact that you know she had actual power <laughs> but like but you know what if if that I mean if that causes Marjorie Taylor Greene to vote against renewing their copyright like don't fucking renew it yeah I see, mean, so I think that's like that's that was my thought as I was reading about this and thinking about it more deeply it was like the Republicans claim the problem with corporate wokeism is that these companies are not acting in the profit motive. 
right? They're like, well, these companies should just be neutral market actors trying to make money. And, and, um, you know, progressives say the problem with corporate wokeism is that it's fake because they are just acting in the profit for the profit motive. The thing is because they clearly are acting for the profit motive, we as market actors can, you know, help influence them to do good things, right? Give $5 million to HRC because you think we're going to buy more Disney movies. If you do great. Um, and then these Republicans, the ones that are in on the joke, maybe they'll do some stuff because they keep threatening, yeah, to remove copyright, to remove tax advantages, stuff like that. Um, and maybe they'll make some progress too. So we're in, we, as we kind of started off, we've got some weird bedfellows on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, like, all we can do is predict the fact that all of these corporations will aim to make as much money as possible. And the more we can make it clear that the best way to do that is to be good, the better they'll be. And, you know, in the same breath, tax the fuck out of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time to end our show, as we usually do. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that I'm making a pretty good recovery on the surgery, you know. That's awesome. I I the the first day after the surgery, like I I couldn't even keep down a kiwi. Mm. Apparently, I don't respond well to anesthesia. <laughs> that sounds miserable. Um, and you know, I'm I'm eating normally and I'm moving pretty normally, so recovery's gone pretty well. And it's it's kind of nice to that life is returning to a nice little uh, a nice little normal for me for the most part. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it, man. Yeah. What about you, Mike? What's your uh, what's your highlight? I think for me, it's got to be the weather. The last couple of days have just been pretty beautiful here and sunny and it's starting to get warm, which means more bike rides and more motorcycle rides and, and all that stuff. So I'm just really looking forward to things being nice outside. And now we'll thank our wonderful patrons for doing what they do to make this show possible. So thank you to Jerry DeViller, Taylor Bloom, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, and Tobias Janssen. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>